Hello, everyone, and welcome to Celebrating Cinema. It's me, Elliot. You're listening to another edition of our offshoot series called Future Frames. This is a series where we celebrate emerging Dutch filmmakers whose frames we're excited to see more of and claim the screen. This particular edition coincides with Volks Hotel Sunday Shorts here in Amsterdam, where we've created our own mini-programme. On the 10th of December, all seven hotel floors will be screening a series of short films, including two from future frame makers we love here on the podcast, Bram Rauter and Rafik. If you're listening before 10th of December, you can find a link for tickets in the show notes. And if you found this interview after attending Vox Sunday Shorts, you can check out other episodes of our future frame series and hear from more Dutch filmmakers. This will be recorded in English with the intention of an international audience, wherever you are. You can access the talent here in the Netherlands. Make sure to leave a review, let us know what you think, and if you'll be attending Volks Sunday Shorts. As I said, today I'm joined by Dutch filmmaker Bram Rauter, whose film Here and Elsewhere will be screening at Volks on the 10th of December. Bram, welcome. Yes, thank you. I was quite deliberate in describing you as a filmmaker rather than perhaps a director, not only because you tend to do a lot of the different dynamics involved in creating a film, not sound, editing, camera work, but also the way you craft a film is perhaps different to what we would associate with a director, let's say. Um, and I first wanted to ask you, how would you describe yourself and the way you make films? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> starting off with the easy one, I see. Um, yeah, no, I, I think in... Uh, so most of my films are very short. They're very small, uh, small in the sense of scale. So yeah. um, they're, um, so like you said, I do everything myself. So the, how would you say like the, the label director always felt weird to me because a director directs the yeah. cast and crew and everything around them. I don't like, I'm not cast in my movie. So I do sometimes do some directing, but most of the time, the films just come from, you know, accident or things that I find or so there I stumble upon them, but a stumbler is not really a good, you know, label for. So yeah, filmmaker, I think would be, um, I still have trouble describing myself as an artist because it feels like such a, like a, a big label. Yeah. You know, a like lot of that. connotations and expectations. Exactly. I've never had an institution, like I don't have an institutional background, so I never had an institution tell me you're an artist. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it feels weird. So in film, I come from film, uh, as in, as a young boy, I loved film always. And so now I get to make the film. Yeah. Makes sense. I think. Yeah. 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 And for people that aren't familiar with your work, I would say it's very meditative, uh, your films, they're sure. sort of conceptual, but non-narrative. Yeah. And they are a series of, I would say, like very refined, but yet beautifully created images that provoke feeling and thought. And before we sort of explore the themes that are prevalent in your film, mm. I wondered, uh, what's your first memory of cinema? My first memory of cinema? Um, uh, I think the first movie I've ever seen in the cinema would have probably been Toy Story 1. That was my first one, but I don't have m much of a memory of it. What I do remember very vividly is um, uh, watching Jurassic Park when I was eight. Yeah. Uh, and for the first time ever, 
seeing the name Steven Spielberg on the screen and thinking, oh, there's a guy who does this. <laughs> there's a person there. Uh, and uh, because I, I, for the longest time, thought that films were made in real time. So mm. when I saw The Lost World, yeah. I was always, uh, by the time I got to The Lost World, I was always, I was just sitting there and I, I must've been 10 or something. And I was just looking at it. It's like, how did they do this? And all, with all the dinosaurs there, was it like, I thought it was a documentary. <laughs> and then slowly I, you know, slowly you start peeling that onion and you start realizing like, oh wait, there's people behind it. And there's, you know, a cinematographer and there's this and there's that. And um, it's kind of like taking apart a radio to see what it looks like on the inside. Yeah. And that is always something that I've been very fascinated by just, figuring out how things work, how systems work, how, how, how the process of making something works and making something can be anything, of course. But for me, because that started with film, I've always gone back to film added to that came this part of like wanting to break it because there's, there's so much fun to be had if you take something apart and then, you know, you accidentally break it or you actually break it, you know, you're you take it apart so much that you can't put it back together. So you just like smash it on the floor and be like, okay, I'm done with this now. Maybe I'll use it for an art piece later or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and that's how I think I've always um, uh, approached film. Just slowly, thanks to Mr. Spielberg, figuring out that there are these people and there is mechanization, mechanizations, mechanations, and there are these rules that can also be broken and need to be broken in order to make something beautiful and Mm. the poetry behind it. And I think that was one of my earliest ones. Uh, I do remember going to see, uh, which movie was I can't, Oh yes. It was jingle all the way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) And I was sitting in the lobby waiting for the movie to start, which took forever in my child brain. And uh, there were these like big TVs hanging in the corner and it was a trailer for the lost world playing. And uh, I was over the most like, mom, did you see that? They're going to make another one. <laughs> and I came from a household with a lot of, uh, films. My dad really likes technology. So we always had like newer TVs in the house and, and, um, and my mom is secretly an enormous nerd. So whenever <laughs> star Wars was on television, she would drag me in front of the television to get to watch it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and watch it with me. So, uh, yeah, I grew up mostly on Hollywood blockbuster science fiction spectacle stuff for the longest time thought that I was going to make something like that. Yeah. Like I said, it's funny that that's what you were brought up on. Um, how you describe your approach to film and wanting to break things down and open it up. I'm, I'm pretty positive that that's actually what Steven Spielberg himself said with how he got into film, sort of this fascination to, (laughs) to know how it works behind it. And mm, that sort yeah. of drove him to making it. But mm-hmm. like you said, where did you start to drift into more conceptual filmmaking? Right? Cause you talk about breaking rules and um, mm-hmm. the materiality of film, I think is also something very prevalent in your films. Yeah. Sort of what, what led you to play more with the layers of films and what we know of film should be like to then break it. Yeah. I was, um, so I was born in 89. So I, I came of age before the internet was invented. So I was stuck to uh, whatever the um, video store had. Mm. You know, I had to rent stuff. Um, and then uh, ultimately the internet came about and there was a forum. There were a lot of forums back then. So that's like slow texting, I guess. Uh, uh, 
uh, I'm probably over explaining this, but you know, there's <laughs> maybe someone who's like, what is a forum? And uh, there was one forum specifically dedicated to film where I met a lot of like-minded people. We were posting mm. lists as you do uh, yeah. as a, as a, as a budding uh, film nerd and uh, which were the most important things to do, you know, on a yeah. day, like yeah. you would work a whole day on a top 50 list of favorite films <laughs> and does uh, Requiem for a Dream have to be at the top or <laughs> should it be the Lord of the Rings or something like that? Uh, and have big, boring discussions about it. And um, at some point we decided with a smaller group of that forum with like-minded people and we were kind of challenging each other mm. to watch different things. And I, I learned a lot about film there. They were mostly academic students. So they mm. were uh, studying at the U University in Amsterdam. And they were uh, doing media studies. So they would give me books, like academic books, like the Bordwell, yeah. you know, film art yeah. was something that I, and I was doing a lower, like, uh, like, like a, a college type uh, education in film. I never went to film school. Um, and, or like the traditional film academy here in the Netherlands. So I didn't really have that theoretical background. I just yeah. had access to cameras uh, and so they gave me the theoretical stuff. And I think the big bang was that we came together one time. We had this like place in Utrecht somewhere, which is in the middle of the Netherlands. And, uh, there was a Beamer and there was a DVD player and people would bring in their Criterion DVDs and we would watch all mm. these movies and everyone was just like, it was like a whole fun thing. But one person brought the Brackage box, the Stan Brackage box, the oh, really? Criterion box. Stan Brackage is a filmmaker who does a lot of different techniques. He came up in the 50s, 60s, and he was part of that like uh, American avant-garde group yeah. in the 70s. And what Brackage did, uh, one of his big things that he would do was he would paint or scratch directly on the film emulsion. So you would have like a film mm. roll and he would uh, change that with ink and he would change that with needles and, and with his nail and which eventually killed him because there's stuff in there that ah. caused cancer. And yeah. yeah, so in 2003, he sadly died uh, while still sick in his bed, scratching with like spit <laughs> and, and his, wow. his nails, uh, which is pretty hardcore. Uh, but he made like, three, 400 films, just like that, constantly working, constantly making things. And they're abstract. Most of them don't have sound. They were the opposite of Spielberg. Like I, I had never seen anything like that. They were pure, they were quite spectacular, but they weren't spectacle. Mm. Uh, they were very visual, very aesthetic, very, but also there was, every film was accompanied by a short introduction by him that he wrote uh, that also illuminated what you were looking at, you know, and kind of to contextualize it. So you had your own opinion and then you could read it and then yeah. you could watch it again and have a completely different experience with it. And I think that, yeah, that opened doors for me. And I remember watching commingled containers and I myth and uh, the Dante quartet and just not knowing how to feel about it, but knowing that it, just changed a lot of things for me in that moment. Yeah. And I wanted to know everything what this was. I've been thinking about it whilst watching your films, especially. What is it you think that these kinds of films can have on us? Because they're completely unexpected, but yet, like you said, they still serve not only a purpose, but they make you think of life 
and film in very different ways. And what do you think that's attributed to? Do you think it's just the simplicity of it in the sense that you're really confronted with the images and you're made to watch it because it's stripped down to its bare nature of filmmaking or something else? Mm, yeah, I simplicity is a yeah. strange word to use, maybe not to... Like it's, it's, it's good because I, I do, I do understand what you mean. It's like they're stripped from all their, all the qualities that we usually attribute to what a film is, yes, but a exactly. film ultimately is just a bunch of pictures, you know, yeah, uh, moving uh, images. Yeah, exactly. So that's it. And, um, so yeah, you're taking it back to its core. You're taking it back almost all the way back to the Lumiere brothers, you know, yeah. who invented the whole thing or like were part of that whole invention train. And then looking at that material and thinking, okay, what else can we do with this? Um, so I think it gives a lot of, for me at least, I've actually been watching a lot of, uh, I'm working on a new film and uh, Brackage has been on my mind again um, as of late. And I think what is so nice about it is that you can, you can turn it on and look at it and think about your day, the next day, what you have to do you know, and just have kind of like you would put on some music, right? Yeah. So it's music for the eyes. So you're just looking at it and you can think you can have your mind drift if after a mm -hmm. long day, I find it very uh, stressful to watch like a Marvel movie after a long, hard day. Like yeah. I'd rather put on something that's more experimental that, uh, that tries to pull me in less and keep me there. Yeah. Uh, because usually they fail, but that's, that's me. <laughs> and, and secondly, like I like to have that, I'd like to have that opening. I want to, I want to enter a film if I want to, but I also would like to keep on the outside if I want to, I want to, I want to be able to approach it uh, theoretically. I want to approach it conceptually or just because vibes, you know, yeah, like yeah, it yeah. could be anything. Yeah. And what I've learned through my own practice and through films like that is that that opening is very nice to have because it also, once you decide to engage with it, the engagement is much deeper because you have to dig and you have to read and you have to figure out what it means or if you want to know what it means, like what could it mean, how was it made, uh, but also to uh, take your question more into account here, you also have room to reflect on your own life because, yeah, the movie is not telling me anything unless I read an interview and I watch the movie again I had a, a similar experience yesterday with uh, Philip Solomon's uh, Remains to be Seen, who was uh, a colleague of Stan Breckage, and he also works a lot with uh, emulsion and uh, very different techniques, but kind of similar. Yeah. It was a very emotional experience because I was watching this film, and I, you know, often when you watch these things, they're kind of cold. You know, you're watching them, and they leave you cold, and they are just images, and yeah. you don't really have a way in, but it's also nice to start on the outside. Uh, but this one somehow reeled me in and, um, uh, and there was such, and then Solomon's films always have this so much grief in his films because he always uses films to, yeah, to go through the grieving process. And I felt it so much there. Mm. And then later on, I read an interview that he made around the time that his mother passed away and he couldn't, he filmed her a lot, but he couldn't use the images because they were too close to him. So he used... I think it was like a Wizard of Oz and stuff, and and he uh. he, he fucked up that emulsion <laughs> and printed it out in different ways and zoomed in on things and just kind of like uh, made things look like the end of the world. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, no, he used Super 8 footage for that, like his own uh, home video stuff that had nothing to do with his mother passing. But somehow in that, he never told me this, and yet I felt it. I yeah. felt something there. And then I read it, and I you know, felt vindicated. It's like, oh, I, I did feel that. And then it becomes, uh, I'm telling it to you now, it becomes part of you because you have internalized it, you have done the work, you have met it halfway, kind of. And I like that experience. The one thing I wanted to go back to actually is it seems like from your childhood and your coming of age moments, you're very immersed in film, not just in watching film, but the community aspect of it and the communal experience of watching something together. And I wondered how much that contributes to what you're thinking of when you're making a film whether you're making it just for yourself and to encapsulate a certain moment, a certain feeling or a willingness, not necessarily a willingness, but a, maybe a wantingness to share this with other people. Mm, I think um, that's a cop-out answer, but a little bit of both. <laughs> uh, uh, I do think about an audience a lot, maybe too much for the type of films that I'm making. Yeah. Because I'm not trying to please you, but I am... I am challenging myself as well as I challenge you. Mm. I think it's a bit of both. I think about the theatrical experience a lot because my films are not very conducive to it, even though that I, what I would like is to, for you to sit down in the cinema, watch my movie, and then have a QR code at the end where you can access the screener so mm. that you can watch it again. Because sometimes you need to watch certain things again because, yeah, they drift by, yeah. you know? Uh, and I've noticed with my favorite filmmakers that I revisit their work often because, well, I change in the meantime uh, and their work stays the same, but I suddenly, I mean, I've had this with uh, narrative films as well where there's this scene suddenly that springs out at you. It's like, was this in the, I've seen this movie like four times. Was this in this all the time? Yeah. Or did they do a director's cut? Or, and I, I, I like that experience as well, where things suddenly uh, jump out more at you because yeah, you've changed in the meantime. And what's a, a narrative film you keep returning to? Oh boy. Uh, let me, let me start with the least um, logical one in this one. Well, Jurassic Park, of course, like I watch that. I don't really rewatch movies, especially longer movies yeah. uh, that much because, uh, yeah, they have a different quality to them. But I think the movies I've seen the most are probably Jurassic Park, uh, Anchorman, Step Brothers, okay. Walk Hard. Like I'm a big Will Ferrell fan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love his work. I have seen, uh, oh, Cosmopolis, the Cronenberg movie mm. is one of my favorite yeah. films. Uh, that's definitely one. Uh, Miami Vice, which is how I know yeah. Ho, who was... <laughs> Your co-host, yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm a big, uh, big Miami Vice uh, fan. I think it's always surprising uh, to hear people's like again films that they return to, especially based on the films that we know them for. Yeah, um, I have one more yeah, if I please. can add uh, Resident Evil, the whole franchise. Uh. I love. <laughs> I there is something about um, blockbusters that fall apart. That's such a Again, interesting but alternative way to read sort of these blockbuster films in the sense you see it more, again, for the materiality of it, of being able to take it apart and see it for what it is. Um, and maybe this is a good time to move to your films. Yeah. And um, keeping with perhaps the blockbuster themes, but you, uh, on two films at least, have focused on the video game Grand Theft Auto. 
And I think it's really interesting. So for anybody that doesn't know, Grand Theft Auto is sort of this open world game set in America where it's sort of law, not lawless, but you're, how would you describe it? And yeah, you're, you're a criminal. You do missions, like you progress in the game um, and you build a criminal empire. That's yeah. basically it. And you have an open world, this sandbox. You're not really, there is a part of the game that tells you you need to go here, you need to go there. But yeah. if you from the very first mission are like, I want to go here, then you can go there. You yeah, know? Like, yeah, yeah. It's all you. It's kind of narrative, but also gives you this yeah. freedom to yeah. to break away from that. And yeah. yet your film, Endless Sea, which is one of your first films, yeah. sort of flips that idea on its head of being able to break away from anything mm. and uh, sort of questions the freedom within this video game itself. Yeah. And so... To explain it, it's, uh, how would you describe Endless Sea? Oh boy. Endless Sea was, Solomon is actually, he came from celluloid and like film emulsion, you know, printing and all that stuff. Yeah. And at some point he had heard the same thing about open world games. And uh, he had this idea of like, uh, oh, I want to check this out. He, he had the game, Grand Theft Auto Vice City. He was appalled by the violence, but it was fascinated by this world that was there. So he was just kind of driving around, checking yeah. out the locale, you know, like he just had a lot of fun with that. And then him and a friend started making films in it um, as a get well soon card to someone else. Ah. And shortly after that film was finished, uh, the person who he made it with, Mark Lepore, he, um, uh, he committed suicide. So the film was suddenly thrown into the ether as in like, you know, as a, in memoriam for Mark Lepore. And it also shook his world, Phil Solomon's world. And he started delving deeper into like, what can I do with this yeah. thing? And I had always so like, because as a kid, I was also gaming a lot, mm. just eating every media that I could find, sure. watched a lot of TV. And, um, and video games were a big part of my life as well, has always been a big part of my life. Getting to put those things together, mm. like my love for yeah, the Grand Theft Auto games and uh, cinema, that was um, that was a later big bang for me. Yeah. Then I found out because I'm more of a nerd than Phil Solomon. Solomon just used his <laughs> PlayStation. I have a PC. I can actually mod the game. Could you quickly explain what modification or modding? A game is so um the game is made in a certain way and works in a certain way and then there's a community there's the community aspect again mm. there's a community around it that then uh is very good at programming and coding and everything else and they start to modify the game usually it starts with i want to add this very specific car into the game yeah. that you can't get because it's my favorite car but then people start to come up with things like a free camera because the camera is always attached to the character. Uh, so uh, you install a mod so that you can actually fly around with a camera. Yeah. And then there's this beautiful thing, and that's where most of my film is based on, the weather mod. Mm. Whoever made that, thank you. Thank you <laughs> a million. So there are 10 weather modes. So it's like sunny, windy, blah, blah, in the game itself. But this one adds like 700 more for some reason. And of course that breaks the game because you could just go down the list and yeah. all the trees become like horizontal yeah. and all these colors happen everywhere. And I really like the idea of this like very violent, empty uh, world, which um, Solomon really underscored the emptiness of the world. But for me, it was that beauty of, of, of all those colors in this like very violent world where everything just kind of blows up willy-nilly, has no consequence. And yeah. So I started just 
uh, screwing around with that for a night. And then after a while, I realized I had a lot of foot. I had acquired a lot of footage and then slowly I started editing it together and uh, see if I could make a flow in it. Yeah. And that was, I think my first actual, I, I'd made a couple of things before that, but they were you know, juvenile and yeah, as in experimental films. Uh, but this one was the first one where I felt like, huh, I did something nice or I, this worked. Perpetual Spawning is a film uh, that was, once again, came out of a night of uh, screwing around in a Grand Theft Auto game. This, this time it was number four. And as I said before, the camera is always attached to a person, to your protagonist, to your avatar. Uh, so one night I actually went into a subway station uh, in the game, not in real life, <laughs> and, uh, and took the camera with, but not my guy. And uh, the game got confused because every uh, second it thought my guy was there. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, no, he's not there. Okay, load everything out. Oh, no, let's load everything in. Oh, no, let's load everything out. And that just kept happening. So you have this, yeah, perpetual spawning, literally, all these pedestrians constantly fading in and out of life. Yeah. Um, it's like a collage of faces and yeah. characters. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, was, I was quite taken with this. And I, I structured it according to um, the subway arriving i wanted one linear line yeah. through it like one thing that you can hang up time yeah uh, that you have like a, a linear sense of time and then this all these people just kind of spawning in and out of existence yeah uh, around creating this like uh time lapse in real time yeah as i described it back then uh but yeah that one's also very much one that came from experimentation mm. If you want to watch any of these movies, like send me an email. I'm very happy to to send them to you. But yeah, I would recommend actually anybody that's interested to start with Endless Sea in particular yeah. because you see a lot of the layers again. I keep saying layers, but th that you're building towards in your later films. And um, you talk about film emotion earlier. You kind of see yourself playing with that in terms of, again, the textures. And I think even if you're not interested in video games or haven't played Grand Theft Auto, for me, I was still moved by these images that you had constructed out of something very, um, I don't know, I don't want to say anti-film, but something you wouldn't expect to be yeah. in a film, let's say. I get that. Um, and perpetual spawning, you build on that a bit more, but perhaps focus more on repetition and time and yeah. the materiality of time again. I mean, people will hear these words that I keep coming back to, but when you watch your films, it's kind of what you're obsessed with, maybe, yeah. if that's fair to say. Yeah, the, the exploration of textures, uh, both in sound and in, uh, in image. Uh, I respond to images much more than I respond to a narrative, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and I, I like that quality about sure. films, that, that the images can tell a different story or can, not even story, story is such a dumb word nowadays, but like, can can communicate something different can give it like a haunted quality or something else than what the narrative is telling you yeah and yeah. i'm really glad you said haunting quality because mm. there's uh kind of a theory i hope you can ex explain it mm. called hauntology mm. um which again is kind of what your films are about if perhaps you could give a sort of layman's definition of what it is oh boy that's like, it's a term that I know and I've run into that because I've read Mark Fisher. Yeah. Uh, but uh, definition wise. I've, I've also written one Please, down, so. please read it out. Yeah. Uh, I'll read it to you and you can tell me if it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But 
So hauntology they describe as exploring ideas related to temporal disjunction, retrofuturism, and cultural memory, and the persistence of the past, which I think you kind of mentioned in terms of the persistence of the past. Nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but again, uh, I wondered perhaps if we think about the cultural memory and the ontology in that aspect, uh, how that relates to both taking a video game object and turning it into a film. I like being lost in media and I, I like having other people be confused at the things that they watch that I make. Yeah. Uh, but that's, 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 uh, another part of it. The, the main part of it is that I really like obsolescence so mm. obsolete media uh old uh, vhs tapes um not because of the nostalgic qualities of it but because each medium has its own uh features but also its own uh way of working it will you know uh dictate how you make something uh, so having filmed something on Super 8 is, was entirely a different experience than having filmed something digitally uh, or in Grand Theft Auto. You know, you have the uh, limitation of the material and your funds and, you know, uh, so that immediately informs how you make something. With those games, these are games that are now considered obsolete, even though that they still have budding communities that make modifications for it. But I do like to revisit these things that we've, that most of culture has decided are old and therefore bad, which I do not agree with for all the reasons I just stated now. But also, and that's something that Brian Eno said, uh, where, yeah, the moment uh, we move on from, you know, thing A, all the bad things about thing A become its features and they become beautiful yeah. suddenly. Uh, which could border on nostalgia, but like I said, it's like I'm not doing it for nostalgic reasons. I'm doing it for yeah, textural explorations, trying to mix things with other things and see how they work together. Immediately when you say taking obsolete objects and almost giving them a new meaning or a new life, I really see that. And I think I guess that's why I, was, I felt familiar in what you were creating. Or like you said, it's not quite nostalgia, but there's a, a certain comfort in a way to what you're seeing because it's not it's not totally new but yet it's showing you something new perhaps let's say yeah by breaking it apart and yeah. putting it back together exactly. or leaving it broken we've been discussing two digital films or two films you made through the digital medium no service i think you then start to explore it still through a digital medium but through uh digital cameras and I think it's really interesting because so you made it in 2017. So you shoot it on an iPhone 5. Was, Among other f cameras, yeah, yeah. Again, you take, although perhaps there's a certain, not again, not nostalgia, but familiarity of shooting on an iPhone 5 for me watching it now. You take, again, something that we're familiar with and change the, not only the meaning, but what is capable with this device. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But perhaps you can first explain what No Service is about and how you came to shoot it the way you did. Uh, I was only thinking about this yesterday, but I took a trip to Sweden to mm -hmm. a small village called Karlsham because uh, most of my days are filled with, uh, no, not so much anymore, but back in the day, uh, were filled with uh, commissioned work. This one was pretty good, but I've also made a couple, you know, like very industrial commercial films because yeah. that's how I pay rent. Uh, this was one of those, and I was invited to go to Sweden 
uh, to make an sort of an after movie documentary about this like small multimedia festival. I was really into the games industry at that point, and I knew a lot of people, and sometimes people would commission me to do certain things. Sure, I could fly there for an hour, but that seems wasteful. Uh, let me take the train. I love trains, uh, but it's an 11 hour trip. You have to go through Hamburg and then Denmark and Sweden. And at the time, me and my partner, she now lives in, in the Netherlands, but she used to live in South Africa. So we had a long distance relationship. And this was also in a time when reception was much worse than it is now or much less stable. So I had long chunks where there was nothing else going on. Uh, and I wanted to text her because we, you know, had a, our relationship had just started and we were texting constantly. And in that fading in and out, in the no service moments, I just started filming outside the window and slowly I started getting this idea that this could be a film. And so, yeah, I took the trip back and forth, came back, edited the thing together, realized that it needed some text to contextualize the thing, but yeah. in, a, in, a, in a different way because I, it was basically a silent movie. Uh, and I like the idea of switching it up of like, okay, now you're reading something and now you're looking out the window endlessly and waiting for the next text to come in. Uh, so I wanted to capture that feeling. Um, so I added our literal text from that, from that journey the, uh, with the time, uh, time stamps with it as well. Perhaps this film encapsulates your style of filmmaking. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I would describe, describe it to anybody that you kind of find the image within an image and sort of blow that up as uh, big as possible, whether you then to focus on just like a particular detail. Mm. It's a refined way of doing it that you can only focus on what you're showing us and nothing more and nothing less. And I think that plays into the music as well, or the sound that you use, because again, minimal, but still there's a certain emotion that comes with the sound that is playing. Yeah, I guess for me, and I think for anybody who isn't familiar with your work or would be watching your kind of films for the first time, how is it to just know what to f film or to find the right image in it? Do you get what I mean? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't think in that way that you would think or visualize in that way you're visualizing. Mm. It's a lot of different things. It's uh, the quality of the light, the colors mm. that it, uh, it's mostly about light, uh, but also... I mean, we, we all take pictures all the time now. Uh, most of them are simply to communicate that mm. you are standing on a corner and that your friend should meet you at that point yeah. <laughs> because it's quicker to send a picture, you know. Uh, for me, it's, um, uh, I don't know, I see a certain movement or I see a certain light. Um, it gets very tacky real quick to talk about these things. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's a certain quality that you look for. And I'm not saying quality in a way where, uh, where it's either good or bad. Yeah. Um, it's not qualified. It's just simply like change or a moment or you know, anything that jumps out at you. And over the course of the amount of years that I've been making films, I've wired or, you know, built the eyes to see that and then to have the motivation to actually capture it. Yeah. Uh, because that's something else, of course. And do you find yourself you're more aware of this when you have a physical camera in your hand or is it something you're quite capable of doing from day to day without that camera? 
It is easier through camera because you have the frame. Yeah. I do like composing for the frame. Mm. Um, I don't navigate 3D space that well in that way. I do always try to cut it up in 2D chunks. Yeah, most of the time it's just a it's just a strange shadow or like a rainbow effect on some wall. You know, my cat's asleep and twitching and, you know, those like small things that jump out at you. But you can also make them happen. So those are the mundane things, but you also can do it with, you know, an actor or uh, a model or a performer or something like that and try to figure it out with the two of you. Like, okay, what is this thing that we want to make and try to find it's a certain kind of expression, I guess, that I'm always looking for an expression yeah. in the moment that is given to me or an expression that I want to express myself. These mundane things, while a lot of us can perhaps recognize the beauty in it, mm. it's hard, very hard, I would say, sometimes to be able to translate that through images or to capture that exact feeling, the way that you felt it in that moment. Uh, oh, you oh, bleeding. Jesus. I'm bleeding. Oh. <laughs> and I'm all over my white no, shirt. No. Oh, no. How's Do you want to get a tissue? Or? No, it's no, fine. No. Yeah, how did that happen? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, leave that in. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want the listener to know that I've bled through this podcast. <laughs> we talk about physicality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, physicality, materiality, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's another thing to be able to really capture that and translate that through a camera and through a screen. Yeah, it, yeah I don't know. I, I I only have these set of eyes and I only have this brain. So for me, it's very normal. And like I said, it's like the moment you get into the poetics of it, it becomes very tacky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's something that you got to see and do and whip out a camera, film something, see what it does. You know, put it in an editing program, put something else next to it that has no, no relation to it whatsoever. See what, how they speak to each other. Mm. Built from there, see what happens. Yeah, That's most of my work. Uh, and that sounds very easy, but sometimes I wake up in the morning and I open up DaVinci, I look at it and I'm like, nothing, yeah. nothing at all. And I'm too afraid to do anything or, you know, like, what if I fuck up the film? It's like, it's digital. You can fuck it up and then do it again. You know, it's fine. Yeah, it, it, it is something that you learn. I guess maybe rather than trying to get you to guess what it is that you're doing, I think perhaps if we hear from you the how you're producing these films, because it's, although you say put it into an editing program and play with it, the way you film it itself is uh, both playful and I think gives it a certain quality that allows you to explore or express something when you are editing. Um, and I think a weave of light does that. And perhaps you can again tell us what a weave of light is about and how you made it. Yeah. So this is a very different film from the other ones because all the other ones were something that I found, uh, were much more about something that I found in the real world and tried to capture it in a way or try to express it or communicate it. Uh, weave of light is very much a film that I made more than I found it, uh, because, uh, I was working with Super 8 material and uh, it's, like I said before, it's very limited and it's very costly material. So like uh, two and a half minutes is like a hundred euros. So yeah, I had a very limited budget. So I had to stage all my shots, figure out what, you know, what they would communicate eventually. And this one came from the, the original idea and it's not so much in the film uh, because that's simply how the film grew. But the initial idea was that uh, my grandfather gave me a box of old Super 8 material. Uh, and one of those 
there was there was one cartridge. So Super 8 is, you know, film material and you have that in cartridges. And if it's been exposed, so if it's been, you know, filmed with, it says exposed on the cartridge. And then you bring it to a developer and they develop it and then you can watch it. This one was never developed. This one was exposed, but someone forgot about it. So what I did was I asked six people that I kind of knew uh, and I wanted to know, learn to know better during the conversation that we would have. I wanted to ask them, what would you want to see on this? Uh, we had long conversations. From those conversations, I took two things. I took things that once again jumped out to me, uh, said something about my own thoughts, struggles, but also their, their own, uh, but only snippets of it. So mm-hmm. never a full thought, only snippets of thoughts. And then the visuals were something that they had described and I had interpreted. Uh, yeah, the film kind of grew from there. They were my script. And I used the interview to um, build the film, basically. The thoughts that you uh, speak of, they're always interrupted and fleeting in some ways that they're almost half-constructed, let's say. You never quite fully form them. What, what is it you're trying to provoke there? Or what are you... Is it trying to reflect the film itself in terms of... Um, of how you can cut up film itself and play with it. And so if you look at film, it's like we said, a series of images and moments. And so they're never as full or as um, whole as we know them to be. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, I never wanted to include the voices um, mm. in the film. That was never the original idea, but then yeah. it kind of happened and I put it under a shot. I, I let it run until the shot was done, but because it's, yeah, Super 8, you have limited material, so the shot was done much sooner than you would normally have time for. And I kind of liked the rhythm that it created uh, of sometimes you would hear someone say something. It would give, um, it would give the, each segment a little bit more body. And then once I had done some more, I realized that the film was very much about perceiving and perception, um, but also about being like a different kind of intimacy to just hear these people speak, not because you want to know what they're talking about, even though that, you know, you could read it in that way, uh, but also to hear their voice in the way that they are mm. saying things. So one of the people in the film uh, sounds very depressed and she was quite depressed at the time. Uh, you can hear that in her voice. My, my sound designer who worked on no service, this one and, and here and elsewhere, Rob Peters, um, uh, he, he remarked on that. It's like, oh, you can really hear, you know, the darkness in their voice. And so in those conversations, those things, um, I take them home and then I edit some more with those ideas and I, I extrapolate those ideas. Uh, so this film really much, even though that I had this idea of like, I'm going to do this thing, it kind of grew completely in a different way because of, yeah, the materials, because of the, the, the interviews, because of what I found, how I changed as a person over the course of a year and a half that I made it. So, yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting speaking to you before, before speaking to you, I had this idea that uh, you would be quite conceptual in how you make films, but it sounds almost like it's a, maybe not a reaction. I think you come with an idea that you want to explore, mm-hmm. but you kind of let the, experience and practice of filmmaking mm. guide you to where you're going to end up in a way because these these things are almost incidental that you couldn't plan for yeah. and yet you're still able to construct some kind of meaning out of that 
Yeah. That, would that be fair? To yeah, say? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I you always come to something with preconceptions, yeah. and uh, I like being wrong. Mm. Uh, it doesn't always feel nice, but yeah. it's good to be wrong and to learn something new. Uh, from the very beginning, since I made films, I I would have this whole idea and I would have it perfectly planned out and I would get to set and this actor was sick. This light wasn't in the place that I thought it was going to be. Oh, this couch is not the color that it was, you know, like, so the more you make, the more you realize that you can't really control unless you are, you know, David Fincher or Wes Anderson, but you know, I'm not, (laughs) I don't have their resources. Even I think if I would have their resources, I wouldn't still do it the way they would do it. You always preconceive certain things, but I think, Good conceptual work lets itself be, lets those preconceived notions be changed during the process because that's why I make the type of films that I make to challenge myself, to learn something new, to, you know, see something else. I think, and you referenced it also when, um, what, sorry, what was the name of the filmmaker you mentioned at the start whose film you were changed by? Oh, Stan Breckage. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned it there. And for me, I would, I think it's fair to say, and at least I will be happy to say this, when you watch your films, you are changed in some way by watching it. And it doesn't have to be as profound as um, people may take, but you're still, I think what you do, you, you really encourage the viewer to just be with the film, but also at the same time to be with themselves, to be aware of what they're thinking when watching this film yeah and um, and i think this is a good time to talk about here and elsewhere uh which will be screened at volks on the 10th of december and it's funny that you describe it as a romantic film um because i ne- i didn't necessarily get that feeling the first time i watched it but as i w- returned to it a couple of times it then started to become stronger that sense of ro- love or guiding it and for anybody that doesn't know, it's based on or loosely based on a poem by Jorge Luis Borges and his poem Arte Poetica. And it's all about water as sort of a guiding force for a journey with an unclear destination. Um, and again, I, I like to make these comparisons, but so you create this idea or construction of a river of time and it's something that's referenced in the poem a lot. And I feel you really play with that again within the film itself, as in film being a river of, or we're in sort of a river of a film that keeps changing and, and moving with as we're watching it. But again, tell us, because I think you do some really cool, uh, <laughs> like, stuff. I just don't know how to describe it because I don't know what it is, but the textures and again, the images you create, there's something you're doing that I don't know how you're able to do. Not necessarily from what you're shooting, but again, the material of it. Is there a certain process involved? Because some of it's shot on Super 8, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 That's leftover footage. Not even leftover footage. I just uh, got really into the habit of buying a roll every now and then mm. because there's something so much fun of just like whipping out a camera, yeah. filming something, not being able to look, look it back until you've, you've, uh, yeah, yeah, you finish the roll and you send it out and a month later it comes yeah. back. Yeah, there are many different textures in this. This one was very much, for me, a film where I wanted to make a structural film. Once again, not in the old school structuralist sense, but literally the architectural structure of the film. The film works as a palindrome, so yeah. it begins and ends in kind of the same spot and there's a middle point. Uh, 
where there's a screen on the water and that's kind of like when it reverses. Yeah. Yeah, this film, I filmed it over a long period of, I think, a year, maybe two years. Some footage is even much older than that. Mm. Uh, but it, I just acquire, you know, like th- what I was just saying, is like you make pictures all the time. I film a lot all the time. Yeah. So I'm not really working on a film. I'm just acquiring footage. Uh, and then I dive into this archive yeah. and I look at these things and I try them out. Yeah. And at a certain point, I had finished The Weave of Light. I hadn't really made anything in a year and a half. And I really got that itch of like, I want to make something. And I had been with a, with a small group of people from Canada who had read it before. I was reading Deleuze's Cinema uh, 1 and 2. And that informed a lot of, you know, new ways about thinking about, as yeah. Deleuze would do with you, uh, thinking about film. And I wanted to try some stuff out um, because all the previous films weren't very theoretical or conceptual, even though that's always been in there because I read a lot about film, but I've never really approached it from that perspective. And I was just curious how, what film I would make after a weave of light. Mm. If, if I could do it again, if I could make something in a short amount of time and what would come out. And I've had this idea of making something very mundane uh, and, and a bit more philosophical and I started to put things together and I had no structuring principle whatsoever, which was very frustrating. And then I remembered the poem from Borges and um, it's very much about uh, the making of art, but it also, you know, touches upon, it's also a palindrome if you look at it long enough, which I did. Um, Heraclitus is mentioned, who's of course the guy who once said, no man, no, no same man steps into the same river twice, uh, because you change and the river changes. And, you know, uh, and I really like that idea and I wanted to hang it up. Um, cause yeah, I've, I've had a long relationship where we've been together for eight, nine years now, uh, since no service, which was, you know, the focal point of no service. The film is not an autobiographical film, but it's just for me to, it's the, in the Godard sense, like to think, think through film, to consider things, not necessarily, um, you know, be didactic about it, tell people like, I've been in a relationship for nine years and this is what it does to me, but more like, here are all these elements from my life and I put them together and now you can watch them and maybe feel something with it or think through my thinking and, uh, and that film helped me uh, like move in a different direction or consider a shape of a film. The films that I make are also always um, uh, more like proposals. Yeah. What a film, but this, and, and each time I'm looking for a different proposal or a different angle of like, Oh, what, what if, what if a film is this? What do you, what do you guys think? I think it's nice. What do you think? I actually don't like it anymore now, but you still like it, you know? So like you, it's much more dialectic, I guess, in that way. Earlier you said you, you would watch other filmmakers films and then you would listen to what they have to say about it and it would change your understanding of the film. And by the way, please email in to Bram to, to watch this film. I really recommend Is there perhaps something that could enlighten someone who's going to watch this film? Well, read critics, not necessarily about my films, um, but, you know, like read people who write about films uh, thoughtfully. So not just a letterboxed one 
joke reviews, but like read Bazin, read Godard, read Deleuze, a bunch of French people. Uh, Michael Sosinski is a good uh, critic. Uh, that, that's how I learn. Just sit there and, and, and let yourself be distracted. I always like another important filmmaker. I'm just going to name drop now because <laughs> I, you, I know you're listening to this podcast, so you're probably a nerd like me, so you probably know many of the names that I know. But Apichet Pung Verasatekun is an enormous influence on my work as well. And I loved hearing for the first time that he said, oh, if you fall asleep during my films, perfect. You know, like there are naps and like, I kind of have the same thing, not necessarily with sleep, but just like, I'm also, I also let my mind drift or just look at the images, close your ears, look at the images, close your eyes, hear what's happening, take it apart for yourself, revisit it, or just like let it flow over you and see what happens. Don't, don't, don't try to glean any meaning or like importance from it. Not everything has to have meaning and be important, yeah. I think. We, we've actually spoken about this before, sort of allowing yourself to fall asleep watching a film because that is how your body's reacting and there's some, something yeah. beautiful in that. How would you see your films be made within a narrative construct? I think the only way, if I, uh, the only straight narrative film I would ever make is if a studio would call me up and be like, you want to direct this Liam Neeson action movie? <laughs> I would say yes in a heartbeat <laughs> yeah. uh, because I would be interested to see what would happen if I would direct a film like yeah, that. Yeah. Can, I, can I take acting and a script and those things into my type of films? Yeah. Can I break that apart? Can I make that part of my films and then show you the process of how that stuff is made and what does an unfinished film look like? And like those are the things that I'm kind of thinking about right now uh, because I do come from fiction yeah. originally and I've always wanted to go into fiction and fiction is such a such a beautiful thing to work with. So, so I don't want to say more, but like there's a different kind of honesty in fiction. I know I would I would be interested in what would happen if I would make if I would bring fiction into the worlds that I've been creating so far. Uh, have people speak, have scripts. So. Well, I'd be really interested to see that. I have one ticket sold, everybody. <laughs> but uh, Bram, I'd like to say thank you very much uh, for speaking with us. I think it really helps these kind of conversations to both understand you as a filmmaker, but also your work. And also the, yeah, I'm going to say the irony and sort of your films explore contradiction. And yet I would say you're almost a contradiction yourself in terms oh, 100%. of- 100%. <laughs> I contain multitudes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah, a better yeah. way of describing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. But I think it also goes to show that you could enjoy these blockbuster Spielberg films and still take something from the things that you make. So I would like to say thank you for joining us and I hope it's been a nice conversation for you. Yeah, thank you for like, I love rambling about movies. And if people want to email you for your films- to be able to watch on Vimeo, what's your email then? If you got to the end and you found my email address, info at uh, bramreiter.nl, then uh, yeah, just send me an email if you're interested and uh, I will definitely uh, send you one uh, if, you're if you ask nice enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Celebrating Cinema series, Future Frames. Make sure to listen to Kirikou's conversation with filmmaker Rafik. If you're listening before the 10th of December, you can find a link for tickets in the show notes and we definitely urge you to go and watch our Sunday Shorts. If you found this interview after attending Volk Sunday Shorts, you can check out other episodes of our Future Frame series and hear from more Dutch filmmakers. Please leave a review on whichever platform you listen on and share so more people can discover 
both us and our future frame makers. As always, we provide show notes, including all films mentioned and links to filmmakers' work at celebratingcinema.com. This was a Lab 111 production, edited and produced by myself, with music from Hugo Emazal and artwork by Studio FFF. Thank you.